0: In another life, I was 17 years old and uh, going to a Bible camp that several Baptist churches, including mine, put together. And uh, I won't tell tell you the year um, for obvious reasons. But what I remember from that, well, there are a lot of things I remember. But one of the challenges and awards that they gave out was for scripture memorization. And so there was a contest to memorize uh, a certain passage. And in this case, it was the book of First John. And so when I was, I was 16 or 17 years old, and uh, for whatever reason that week, I found it pretty easy to remember First John. So um, I actually memorized the first four chapters. And I was starting to get through chapter five. And then some girl from another, uh, another church beat me out there at the last minute. She got a few more verses. Not that I'm still bitter about that, but <laughs> I say that because there is a, a phrase in Chapter 4 that has kind of haunted me, and that may be too strong of a word, but it's been in the back of my mind ever since. And again, that was a while ago. And that, that phrase was, was here in the passage we're going to look at. It's in John four seventeen. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So I remember reading that at 17 years old. I remember th- there's some power here. There's some wisdom here. But the problem is I didn't really understand what that really meant fully. And now looking back on a lifetime after that, I I, I say, I think I have an understanding now, but at the same time, I know I need to hear this because I don't live without fear day to day. And I'm guessing you don't either. I'm guessing we all need this. I was sitting at breakfast yesterday with a cousin, one of the most godly men I know. So he's in his early 60s, He's given his life, to he's a a layman, but he's given his life just to trying to, to become like Christ and a lot of spiritual maturity. And as we started talking, we've talked about spiritual things, and he mentioned—I uh, don't know how guest Darby but he mentioned that his biggest need right now was fear. That he he was battling that all the time in all the different areas of his life. So I know I'm not alone. There are at least two of us, maybe a few more in here that struggle with anxiety, that struggle with fear, with with struggle about thinking about the future, the struggle about worry. And uh, and so this phrase, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, I think can be a great antidote or at least part of the process by which God brings healing in that area of our life. Well, Father, would you guide us as we read your word, please? Would you indeed, as that song shows, or as that song talked about, show us Christ? No one here needs to know my opinion or hear my opinion. But we all need to see you through the preaching of your word would you let that be true would you let our hearts be open to you would would you let our hearts be attentive to you forget about the things of the past week or the things coming up but instead come together to this beautiful word that living in perfect love we can be without fear thank you father amen all right, so our passage here, First John 4, 16 through 18. Now, this is actually, I think, our fourth week in, in this chapter. Uh, so we, we've kind of gone through the whole thing. But I want to zero back in on this because, as I said, I think it's so important. But let's read the immediate context. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we have confidence on the day of judgment, for in this world we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So as I'm kind of working through this, and like I said, I'm really trying to get my own mind on this. A couple of questions come in my mind, and the first one is this. All right, what does he mean by perfect love? What does he mean by perfect love? And the reason I want to spend some time on that is because I, I think a misconception here may hinder us going forward. I remember uh, even farther back in my life, I think I was 11 years old or something, watching a woman named Nadia Cominici. Some of you remember her, right? Scores the first perfect 10s in gymnastics in the Olympics. Uh, I think she was 14. I might have had a small crush on her at that time. Um, but you know, the judges watched her routine And they simply concluded, there is no mistake, large or small, it is perfection. We have to give her a 10. I've never done that before. Now, here's what I'm trying to get across. We don't have to have Nadia Cominici kind of love. This is not a promise to us that if you are perfect in your performance of love and you never get it wrong, then love will kick out out that, that fear. There is no fear in there. Now, it goes, there's better news than this. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to score a perfect 10 uh, on your love meter. But rather, there is a, a little bit deeper meaning of this. Now, <clears throat> I'm reading this in the NIV. I, I like the NIV. I still use it. But sometimes it drives me crazy. One of the things it does that drives me crazy is this. You're going to see three highlighted words here. In just a passage we read, his love is completed. Love made complete by perfect love. Now, here's the deal. Those are all three translating the same Greek word. Now, you're not going to get that in this particular English translation, which is annoying to me because we're reading this in English and we're thinking, oh, he's talking about a little bit different kind of love here. No, it's the same word. The Greek word is actually teleos, which has the idea of complete, mature, lacking nothing, sometimes used as perfect, but not in the sense of flawless, but rather it's all that it should be, basically. Let me give you an illustration. This tree is teleos. This oak tree is telling us It's exactly what an oak tree should be, right? This one is not. It is an oak tree, but it's got some disease or wasting or something. And it's not what it should be. So he's talking about this kind of love. It's a mature, completed love that as it should be, not a flawlessness. That's not the main emphasis. So we'll come back to this. All right, what does he mean then? Well, here's what we're told. If we love one another, God lives within us. And his love is made complete within us. So thankfully, John simply tells us, okay, I'm going to explain what I mean by completed love. When you love another person in the same way that God has loved you, because God has loved you, you are living in complete or perfected love. You don't have to be Nadi ecumenici, you don't score a 10, you're not going to, but if you're moving in this direction, whatever you do towards that is this type <coughs> of completed love. Excuse me. Yeah. One way to think of this. <coughs> Thank you, Rob. My mic off while I caught. happened for a while. One way to uh, kind of get a grip on this one way to kind of get a grip on this is to remember that. Several times in first John, he tells us what God's love is, what love is. God's love, as he tells us in this chapter and chapter before, is God giving of himself to meet our deepest need, our forgiveness for sin, so that we can be reunited with our Creator. So that what God's love is, is giving to meet our deepest need. And so that's what's going to be. Thank you, Mr. Robin. I'll leave it here. I think that's vodka. She must have got their private stash. <laughs> Do <you> not? <laughs> Whatever will get me through the service. All right. Okay. So here's where I'm going with this. So John defines love as giving of yourself sacrificially to meet the needs of the other. And then he says that we love because God has first loved us. But here's the problem, right? Okay, how can I love God if loving means giving to meet the needs of the other? Because this is God. He doesn't have any needs. He was perfect before he ever brought me or the universe into existence. So what can it mean then that I love because God loved me when that's the definition of love? And the answer, very clear in John, is this. You cannot love God directly in this way. I suppose you can love God directly in this way, but the emphasis in this book is this that the way we love God is by loving others, because others are what God cares about. So we can't meet any needs in God himself, but when we give of ourselves sacrificially to meet the deepest needs of other people, there is a completeness to that love, because that is God's love going to that other person, and that other person then being able to respond to God. So that's the idea here. Now, And again, the reason I want to get this across It's because I want us to understand that anything we do then, because God has loved us and we want to show that same love to somebody else, giving to meet their needs, is an act of completed or perfect love. Thankfully, you don't have to be Nadia Kamenichi. You just have to be you, doing the things God brings to your mind in loving other people. You'll never be able to do everything. You'll never be able to love everyone perfectly. But growing in this means we're growing in this perfected love. All right. So second question, what kind of fear is cast out by perfect love? What kind of fear is cast out by perfect love? Well, I'm going to say that there are at least four. Now, maybe there are more here, but at least four that come to my mind as I think through this as, 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 an older Christian now, uh, more mature hopefully, and as a pastor in my interactions with other people, there seems to be at least four kinds. And the first is the fear of punishment. The fear of punishment. In fact, that's what John starts off with here. For fear has to do My battery's just died, I think. Hmm, Okay. For fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So one of the th- things John wants to get across to us is he wants us to have confidence. He uses that, that word again and again in First John, of who we are in Christ. And how do we have that confidence? Well, it's not these special spiritual experiences. It's not even spiritual gifts. Remember Matthew 7, Jesus said, Many will come to me that day, many. And he'll say, they'll say to him on the day of judgment, uh, did we not cast out demons and do miracles and do all these other kinds of things? And Jesus doesn't disagree with him. says, no, you didn't do any of those things. He says, depart from me. I never knew you. So what is it that we know will give us this confidence that we really are in Christ? Because self-deception is very easy, very prevalent. And here's this idea that if our heart is prompting us to, and we fulfill this obedience of living out, then we have this confidence that on the day of judgment, we are his. Even in this world, we're doing what he's doing, as he puts it. So therefore, we have confidence that we are in Christ and becoming like him. C.S. Lewis put it this way, why this is so important. In the end, that face which is the delight or terror of the universe must be turned upon each one of us with either one expression or the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. There will be a day. First John three three tells us there will be a day we will see him face to face, and we can have confidence. We don't have to be afraid of his judgment. Now, I think that can be extended. Right? There's also a fear not only of the day of judgment, but in our relationship with God, there there can be this fear that I have to measure up somehow. That somehow I will not find God's blessing, or even worse, I might find you know He throwing various kinds of thunderbolts at me if I if I mess up. And I think that that fear is very common, especially for many of us who grew up in a legalistic background. And as Tim Keller notes in the sermon notes, there legalism is not just the idea that I have to obey, that my obedience gets me into into heaven. It's it's more the mindset. That in my relationship with God, what determines his affection, his approval, and his blessing on me is what I do. That's a legalistic mindset. It's a fear mindset. Our good friend uh, Alan Abbott, there he is. Um, I had lunch with him. He told me he was writing this blog, so I had to check it out. And there's there really good writing there. He wrote a post about being safe. And I, I really like this. He said, If my dad wanted me to live a high moral life and sacrificial giving to the poor and being kind to the neighbors and forgiving people who had wronged me and told me that my punishment for refusing to live my life this way would be removal of his love and acceptance for me, I might certainly do all those things. I might buy meals for the poor. I might be nice to the neighbors, take care of their pets when they go on vacation. But my obedience would come from a place of insecurity from an, from an attempt to fight off the shadow of what would happen if I disobeyed. Only horrible love, poor kindness, anemic forgiveness would be dragged from the heart. Dragged from the heart, I like that. Some days, he goes on, this is how I envision my Christian life. And my heart has stopped responding. My heart has curled up into its shell and it awaits a better, safer presence than the one of the imagined God that has at times haunted my Christian life. And, uh, I think that haunts a lot of us, even when we know better intellectually. But this kind of love, he says, I, I want you to understand, you don't have to perform up to a certain level to know that you're his, to be in his blessing. So you've already got that. What you're called to now is simply to love other people, to let any holiness and performance just be part of the way that you serve them in this world. All right, I could go on there, but I'm going to go on. Because I think this one, although it's not one John talks specifically here as a pastor, I think this is a killer. And that is not only the fear of God's judgment, but the fear that I'm not good enough. Kind of ties in, because if I feel like I'm not good enough, there is this idea that God's not going to bless me, or even worse, that he'll punish me. But the fear of not being good enough is near universal. I think we all struggle with this to some degree. Well, maybe not all of us, but I do know one thing. I know that no amount of success by itself will take this away. Because when celebrities and high achievers and people who have done the great things of this world, when they sit down and get honest, that's what they all say. David Bowie. I had such enormous self-image and and self-esteem problems which I hid behind obsessive writing and performing I was driven to get through life very quickly. I really felt so utterly inadequate. I thought that the work was the only thing of value. Emma Watson, famous actress now. It's almost like the better I do, the more my feelings of inadequacy actually increase. Sonia Sotomayor, the first uh, Hispanic Supreme Court justice, and that's as high as you can get within the legal field. She says, I've spent my years since Princeton while at law school and in my various professional jobs, not feeling completely a part of the world I inhabit. I'm always looking over my shoulder, wondering if I measure up. Tom Hanks, no matter what we've done, there comes a point where you think, how did I get here? When are they going to discover that I am, in fact, a fraud and take everything from me? Cheryl Sandberg, the chief operating officer at Facebook, has often admitted to feeling like an imposter at times. Uh, she's pi- uh, Beta Kappa Honor Society at Harvard in 2015. She went back and gave the commencement address. She wrote or she said, every time I took a test, I was sure that it, that it had gone bad. Every time I didn't embarrass myself or even excelled, I believed I had fooled someone else yet again. One day soon, the jig would be up. There are still days when I wake up feeling like a fraud, not sure to be, not sure I should be where I am. Now, How does living in love, living in this mature, perfect love, cast out this fear? Well, in two ways. Two ways. First, when I live in love, not only knowing that he loves me, but putting into practice that kind of love towards others, it allows this great and wondrous freeing truth that my performance does not matter about God's acceptance of me, And ultimately, all the blessings that flow from that, it allows it to go from here to here. It allows me to experience it. It begins to settle more deeply because I understand what it means to love someone without conditions, without agenda. That's a very beautiful thing. The second way that completed love casts out the fear of not being good enough is this. When we get this, when we practice this, we understand that the only thing that matters achievement wise is love. The greatest human achievement that we could ever accomplish, no matter who you are in this room, is simply this, to love other people like God has loved you. Natalie Portman, one more celebrity, and this kind of segues into this thought. She was also a Harvard student. She said, so I have to admit that even today, 12 years after graduation, I'm still insecure about my own worthiness. After to remind myself today, you were here for a reason. Uh, I felt like there had been some mistake, that I wasn't smart enough to be in this school or this company. And then she goes on, Sometimes your insecurities and your inexperience may lead you to embrace other people's expectations, standards, or values, but you can harness that inexperience to carve out your own path, one that is free of the burden of knowing how things are supposed to be, A path that is defined by its own particular set of reasons. Do you hear what she's saying? This is actually very good advice. When you see your own insecurities and fears, it can lead you to more of that, more depression, feeling worthless, or it can lead you to redefine what success really is, what achievement really is. Now, that seems to me to be a very New Testament concept because I recall a chapter, you might have heard of it, 1 Corinthians 13, where, where Paul kind of says the same thing, right? If I speak with the tongues of men or angels, but, but don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And he's speaking to church people who are exalting themselves about their spiritual gifts. So that's the context. But you can put other things in here, other achievements. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I could fathom all mysteries, all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I have to all I possess to the poor, give my body over to hardship that I may boast, and do not have love, I gain nothing. That's the idea here that I'm trying to get across. That when we understand the value of this love, of receiving and giving this love, and what it means, then we realize that it doesn't really matter what else I achieve or don't achieve in life. That's not determinant of my value at all or my greatness for that matter fact it's not wrong to want to be great it's just that we usually want it in the wrong way there is within us a desire to do great things to make our life worthwhile but what we're reading all through this book of first John and as this passage reminds us of is that that is not found in the ways that this world seeks achievement, in the way that most of us have grown up thinking about it, it is down to becoming a person of love. I wanted to illustrate this. Maybe, uh, <clears throat> you know, maybe this can help solidify this in our minds a little bit. Yeah. So I want you to imagine each day. You are going to start off with a certain amount of hours, a certain amount of energy, a certain amount of capacity to do things, right? Now, what Paul was saying is that most of us, we're trying to do this. We're trying to put all of the rocks that represent our ability, our time, our resources, our bandwidth, our gifts. We're trying to put in this box called achievement. But Paul is saying, wait a second. What if instead we changed it so that we made our focus putting this in the box called works of love? Now, what he's pointing out is this. One day, all oh, this is going to be gone. All right. And the only thing that's going to remain is this. So in the in the years of eternity to come, And in God's eyes right now, the only thing that's going to matter is what's in this box, not the other. That's going to go away. But this box, as Paul says, love always remains. It never fails. So the challenge for us here is to understand that when I'm putting rocks here, I am doing something great. I am doing something worthwhile. And that's the only greatness I need I don't have to worry about measuring up in other ways. I don't have to fear that. All right, let's go on here a little bit. Third is fear of the future. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I think we can understand this. But we all have hopes and dreams for how we want life to turn out in the next five or 10 years, right? You know, this is a uniquely human thing. Your dog doesn't worry about or think about what's going to be his life's going to be like in two months or two years, but we do. We have that capability. It's both our glory and a curse as a human because we can envision things going horribly wrong or we can worry about things not going right the way we want. But when we live in completed love, we begin to cast out that fear. For when I am giving of myself to, for the good of another person, it makes me understand what God is doing for me, that he's working for my ultimate good. When you love someone this way, you don't just give them what they want. Sometimes what they want is not what's good for them. We see that especially with kids, but not just kids. Rather, you give them what they need. And you understand when you do that, when you become a person like this, this is how God has loved me. I don't have to fear. Yes, things may not turn out the way I want. Probably not going to. Because often our dreams are selfish and sometimes unrealistic, right? but they will turn out the way that's good for me because that's what love does. All right. I could go on. I'm going to go to the last one because I think this is a big one that keeps us us actually from loving. So love casts out at least three different kinds of fears. The fear of the future, the fear that I'm not good enough, the fear of punishment. And last, the fear that love itself will cost too much. What I mean by that is we have within us this idea, all right, if I'm giving myself to putting rocks in that box, I know who I'm thinking of here, and it might be very one-sided. They may not appreciate. They may not reciprocate. Or it's going to cost a lot of time, a lot of bandwidth. It's going to cost some ease of comfort that I don't want to give up. And you know what? It will. It will. I have news for you. To live a life of love this way will be costly. But the best things in life always are. God's love for you was costly love. First Peter 1 tells us, it wasn't with perishable things like silver and gold that he redeemed you from an empty way of life handed down by your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or stain. So silver and gold, who cares? God gave this for you. Something much, much more valuable. Did it cost God? You bet. But he was willing to pay the price because of his love for you. There is no fear in love, but there is a cross. There is a cross in Jesus for Jesus in loving you, and there will be a cross for you in loving others. In fact, Jesus himself talked about the fact that if we don't pick up our cross daily and follow him, we're not his disciples. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to die a sacrificial death for other people. But rather, what it means is that on a consistent basis to be a follower of Christ means that we're going to have to live in a certain kind of self-denial for the good of other people. That's what that cross represents. We will have to pay a cross. Have to pay a price. We'll have to pick up a cross. But here's the thing. Jesus did that. In Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2 says, He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. What joy? More more glory, more fame? Really? This is the eternal son of God, the prince of heaven. What could we possibly add to that? Now, the joy of loving us and being restored in this relationship with us, that was what he endured the cross for. There is a beauty, there is a joy that only love brings. After Amy gave birth to our first child, she made this remark, I can't understand why any woman would do this more than once. (laughs) But you know what? Like most mothers, she did do it more than once. Because while the pain is real, it's temporary, and it gives birth to something that's eternal and far better, the pain of, of love is always like that. It's always worth it. It was worth it to God. Jesus counted the cost. And he said, you're worth it. And then he said to us, I want you to count the cost too. That's what we need to do, to look clear-eyed at what it costs cost you to live in love, putting particulars to that vision in a way that I can't hear, and then look at the value of living in that love, showing that kind of love, becoming a person of love, becoming like God himself, counting the cost.